friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. No, not literally. You could keep them on your head. You know why you want your ears today? So you can hear Santa coming down the freaking chimney. It is Christmas Eve 2018. Uh, This is crazy. Like, I can't believe the holidays are here. I'm super excited for them. Hope you're all with the people you love. If you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you're getting Chinese food or going to the movies. If you do celebrate Christmas, I hope you're finding deep meaning in it and feeling refreshed and good and maybe listening to one of your new favorite podcasts of the year. Hey, no, but for real, thank you to all the listeners who signed up this year and all the amazing support and all the subscribers and everything. Starting this podcast has been one of the highlights of the year for me. Of course, I wanted to give a shout out to some of the new Patreon supporters this week. Uh, Mick Brom or MC Brom, that's I think his name on Patreon. Shout out to him. Maria and Jeremy, the new ones, they signed up super quick. Thank you very much. And also to the old school supporters, some of the old school supporters, Todd, Ian, and Nalan, Nalan. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys. I dropped the Chronicles of Narnia. That's what's up. And I just put out a Christmas song about Donkey Kong. That's what's up. Check it out. So this week, last week we talked to my dad, right? This week we talked to my mom, DJ Kathy Nielsen. We talked about her career, her academic career, uh, what it was like falling in love and getting married in college. Um, funny story about how my dad proposed to her, but she was like, yeah, but I need to finish grad school. Is that okay? My mom is just a cool feminist, intelligent teacher, mother, artist, writer, poet, historian. I love her. I'm lucky to have such a great mom. So this is my interview with DJ Kathy Nielsen. And we're going to end with iGeneration, which if those of you haven't seen the video, it's super old by now. My cousin directed it. My mom plays the science teacher. We bust into the room and like cause havoc and she kills it. So she talks about what it was like being on the set of that video. And we talk about how being a mom was not easy, especially when you're when your son is MC Lars. No, I'm playing. No, actually, she did great. We recorded this. We had, I took a few days. I went to Disneyland with my parents and my sister. We recorded this at a hotel across the street from Disneyland. So that gives some festive context. So anyway, check it out. This is my interview with my mom, DJ Kathy Nielsen. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce a very special person to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for DJ Kathy Nielsen. Woo! <laughs> Hi, Mom. Hi. Hi, Andrew. How are you? You have the distinction of being the first woman I've had on the podcast, and we're like, uh, uh, this is a few months in, so I wanted to, first of all, apologize that it took me bringing my mom on the podcast <laughs> to have our, our first woman, but it's a cool, It's I guess that's a cool distinction, right? Right. And I'm honored to be the first woman on your podcast. And I know there will be many more. Let's try to make it 50-50. Actually, maybe this podcast should be three quarters women. Um, not a bad idea. Not so, a bad. <laughs> so let's talk. You're a poet, Mom, right? Well, I'm, I, I don't really consider myself a poet. I'm, I'm more striving to be a writer. This writing class that I'm in, we use that as a framework. And so I did come up with a poem. Would you care to share it with our listeners? I'd love to. It's called Where I'm From, and um, it goes like this. I am from California, golden coastal hills, oak trees, fields of lupin and poppies. I am from cow pastures, poison oak, tadpoles, slow-moving creeks. 
I am from the Oakland Hills, Lafayette, Tahoe, Los Angeles, Carmel Valley, seasoned with New York City and Washington, D.C. I am from Hot Valley Summers, toe-headed cousins, family reunions. I am from Sunday School and Church Choir, Young Life. I am from Brownies, Campfire Girls, Cookies, Mints. I am from Ballet Shoes, Roller Skates, Ping Pong Paddles, Downhill Skis, Tennis Rackets, Hiking Boots. I am from a family's drugstore, Prescriptions, Hallmark Cards, Revlon and Anita of Denmark. I am from Cal Stanford football games, tailgates, crisp autumn afternoons. I am from libraries, books, Shakespeare, the Beatles. I am from Esther, Kate, Sarah, Helen Ann, Ella May, and seven paternal aunts, all strong role models. I am from Swedish meatballs, roast beef and potatoes, goulash, turkey and cranberry sauce, apple pie. I am from beloved pets, parakeets, Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney, Pete, cats, shoes, spots, Franklin, Donald, dogs, Flicka, Charlie Brown, Daisy, Joy. These memories, these places, these people, these animals are all part of me. This is a poem that was inspired by George Ella Lyon, Kentucky's first poet laureate. And um, she wrote a poem um, about her, where she was from, and I was inspired by that. That's a good piece. You've been writing a lot these days, haven't you? I have. And um, I can actually owe that to you because uh, one time we took a walk, a hike, and I was saying that I had all these stories to tell and that I needed to, or I wanted to, write them down so that I could pass them on to the next generation. And you said to me, Mom, just do it. It doesn't matter um, how perfect it is or how together it is. Just jump in and do it. So that's what I've been doing. And that was about, I don't know, five years ago or so. Wow. And we, we had that walk. I remember that. And you've, since then, you've published your first book, right? A right. Family History. Right. And um, you're working on a follow-up, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you, um, you know, I, I have a fond memory. In that poem, in, you talk about Shakespeare and Tahoe. And I remember summers with my sister, you'd, we'd always go see Shakespeare that summer. But not only did we have to go have to go to the lake to see Shakespeare on the lake, which you know now I realize is amazing. But we also were assigned reading <laughs> to have a summary of the play, and we were quizzed, and we had to read the play, understand it, be able to converse it, and do all this like the day before the play. And that was always like an annual summer tradition. My sister and I were like, "All right, well here we go," and I guess we know everything about you know. I guess we know everything about Othello now. <laughs> so I thank you for that now, but I remember really, I don't know. How would how did you get um, middle school kids to read Shakespeare synopses and get, and, event, and when we got there, we were excited because we could follow the plays. Well, there's um, there was a book that I was given by a great aunt um, by Marcette Shute. It was Tales of Shakespeare put in, um, a format that elementary and junior high school kids and high school kids could understand. So um, I love that book, and I read that book, and I love Shakespeare. And so I thought that, you know, you probably were 9 and 10 and 11. I mean, you weren't very old. And I thought, these 
these two kids can't go to Shakespeare without at least knowing the story because they're not going to be able to understand Shakespeare's English. So we would read those parts from that book. And the amazing thing is that that was something that was given to me by a great aunt, which would be your great, great aunt. So her contribution was passed on down to you. Well, and then the lit hop stuff is, you know, people ask why I love writing rap songs about books and stories. And I remember one year, I probably never told you this story, but I found in in Oakland, I found like a drawer where you would keep presents that you were going to give us like for our, for Christmas or something. And I found an Edgar Allan Poe book. And I was so, I I looked at the cover. I was like, cause I was really into ghost stories, you know, it's probably nine or 10 similar age. I was like, Ooh, this Christmas, maybe I'll get that book. And I'd always look for it. And I'd always be, I'd always maybe be disappointed because it, it was a few years. I think you were waiting till I was old enough for for me to read it. (laughs) And I remember when I got, it it was so exciting to read those stories because they were you know, I love the the scary stories to tell in the dark, and it was like a more adult version of that. Do you remember that book? Uh, I, I remember that book. Do you still have it? It's, in our, it's probably in the family library. Yeah, uh-huh. I remember the cover was the pit and the pendulum, like the the uh, axe, and that was like so gory but so interesting. Oh, that's amazing. Well, um, I probably saw it and thought this is a great book, and I'm going to save it when Andrew's old enough to really get it and understand it. And so, but that's interesting. Then. <laughs> I'm learning about the fact that you did find this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I did. Like things I'd pick up that I thought were really great, but maybe weren't quite the timing. I'd save them, and then I'd say, this is perfect. So that is a great story. Um, yeah, that's that's really fun. And I do remember that, and we'll have to look and see if it's on the bookshelf, which it probably is, yeah. And another gift, other than the gift of life, that you gave me was, I remember when you were a librarian in the, in the North Bay, in the Bay Area, I'd love to come visit you at work because you had this giant stack of old mad magazines. And one summer, you came, instead of throwing them out, you were a hero. You brought like a giant box of all these mad magazines that went back to the early 80s, and it was hundreds of them. And you're like, well, you can have you can have these. And I remember I spent the whole summer before third grade reading them and it really gave me an understanding of pop culture history and it was very educational and that that was that was a gift that at that time totally changed my life and I I hope you are aware of how important that was (laughs) that's interesting well I think you came with me to school um and it was there on the shelf, and you grabbed it and started looking at it. That probably was your first introduction, is that right? Yeah, because it was the Ninja Turtles, and it was Alfred Newman as Splinter, and it was the secret of the ooze. So you, I think it was like, I, I could see that you just opened up that that was like amazing. Right. And, and um, I guess we were, you know, weeding back issues, and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it was important to introduce you to stuff that, you know, you were interested in, and... Mad Magazine was a classic. And I remember also that when we went to New York, uh, you also must have been 10 or 11 at that Probably time. Probably eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. Yeah. So you're more like 13 or 14. Um, we visited New York and made appointment at the Mad Magazine office. And this really nice man took you all around. And do you remember that one um, office we went to and there were all the pencils hanging from the ceiling? Yeah. That like someone had either put them up there or throwing them up there with an idea. And it was just such a creative place. And you just thought that was great. And then you had eventually down the road, a friend of yours had an opportunity to intern there. 
Yeah, and I I did a podcast with Chris, and he talks about that. It's funny you mentioned that, and that will I'll post that later. But um, he got he was living in New York because he was at Vassar, and so he he spent the summer in the city interning, which was something I always wanted to do. But the you know, too bad I had this rap rap career taken <laughs> off. I, I I was the summer after junior year. I really wanted to apply for that, and yeah, it, it was interesting, mom, because you. I couldn't have asked you. You talk sometimes about reincarnation and this idea of a soul basket, right? Mm-hmm. That may, that you and my sister Sarah maybe were in another life. You were she was your mom or something. Yeah, we were sisters, and maybe she was my mom. Uh, it's just an interesting concept. Um, Sarah um, probably do people know about Sarah? Yeah, we could talk about her. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, Sarah is adopted, and um, I do have this idea that she was a gift given to us. And there is this idea of maybe reincarnation and that we were in the same soul basket, but on the same line that Andrew is a gift also. And um, we feel very blessed to have had (laughs) these two very creative, amazing kids. Well, like on the podcast with dad, we were talking about how it must have been hard at times being the referee when you kind of had the brunt of it because dad was traveling so much for work and you were a teacher and a librarian, but at the same time you were home more. When Sarah and I would both decide we we liked a certain pillow and we'd fight, we'd fight, fight over it. Like such stupid things where I don't know. Now I realize it was it, it was ridiculous. But yeah, well, how did you try to keep the peace, especially with dad gone all the time? Well, um, th- that's a good question. I guess sometimes I let you just figure it out. And but other times it was a call for separation. Time but outs. but the the tricky time was when you were in the car and we were going someplace and it was a little hard to um, separate at that point. But we try not to crash, and we're trying not to crash. But when you were little, we would put in um, music. Uh, there were cassette tapes in the car, and I remember Raffi was a favorite. That would shut us up. And that would shut you up because then you'd sing along or you'd be interested. Or I'd put a story in. Maybe I'd have a story that was on a cassette. And I'd say, hey, let's listen to this now. (laughs) And so it was called distraction. Uh, Let's find something else to do besides. You guys are bored. (laughs) You're you're picking on each other. Let's find something else to do. Well, and that was the other thing. You always, we always had books on audio tape that you'd rent from the library or give us. And on our little tape recorders, we'd fall asleep listening to Stuff like Roald Dahl. I remember the Jacob Tutu and the Dinosaur, Where the Red Fern Grows, Shiloh, you, uh, Scary Stories. Oh, stuff. my goodness. You remember them all. Yeah. These, these, I remember you got us a box set of, the, of, of Roald Dahl stuff. And it was, you know, it's like it was like audible for kids. And that really, I think, informed my imagination. I also remember there was another one where they would tell stories and then they'd play music. And while they played the music, they'd say, okay, draw. Now you draw whatever you're inspired by. <laughs> but when I was asleep, when I was going to sleep, I'd listen to it. And the music, I'd listen to the music and I'd think of these stories. Like I remember I'd, I'd always have this memory of uh, this this whole series of stories with Roger Rabbit riding an elephant and their adventures together. And so they would tell a story and then I'd imagine these characters while the music played this vivid imagination. And I think like that taught me how to like set narration to music in a very ah. free form way. So in a way... You and dad were conservative in a way, but you're both kind of hippies in the way you really, I don't know, nurtured us, I guess. Well, we appreciated um, your talents and we wanted to just 
back you up and give you the opportunity to express yourself. And there were some times when like you were on the cliff, just ready to put that other leg over um, because you were so curious and you were exploring. Um, and you had to be sort of pulled back sometimes. But generally, um, we just really felt that it was important to let your creativity go. And we supported that in every way we could. And you guys were such good kids. I mean, you were basically, um, you know, you were exploring all these things. And it was fun. And we were exploring them too. So growing up with you, as, as Dad said in his interview, um, growing up with you both was really fun. It was a really great period. And it's still fun. It's still fun. I remember, thanks, Mom. I remember, gosh, we're... This was a, this was very formative, and maybe this is what like forced me to be res a responsible artist or something that did. I would you, you got me some crayons, and I would draw on the wall I a know. lot. You I paint know. over it. Oh, I, I know. draw again. Oh. I draw again. And I remember once Annie Val came over, and I was so excited because I'd drawn like a werewolf in the moon, and I was like, "Look, look!" And you were so mad. You grabbed my arm, and you were you would not have any of it. And Val looked like terrified because she knew I was about to get in big trouble. And that was the last time I drew on the wall because you must have painted over four times. I know. I'm sorry about that for <laughs> no, grabbing I, your arm. But well, you didn't. You were just. You'd had enough. You were never. You were never rough or anything. But it was like you were clear. Like no. This four is, times. There's paper. Why do you have to be a little graffiti artist in your room? And you know another story, which actually I think was really neat, is that you drew on a paper on the table. Do you remember this? Yeah. Uh, that left a mark. It was a Lars Horace uh, symbol and left a mark on the table. And I was wondering, should I kind of sand this out and save this? And I thought, no, that is a really neat drawing. And it's still there. A Tahoe. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's like Alfred E. Newman. Yeah. And yeah. it's still there and it's kind of special. So maybe we could have left your murals on the well, wall too. No, I mean, I, I think that is needed to learn limits. And I think that was like... There is a time and place for everything. And just because Andy Val's coming over and I feel like drawing a werewolf howling at the moon, it's not the time. To, I remember where I drew it. It was right by the corner there by the bed, by the <laughs> bathroom. And uh, it was small, but it's small enough. I, I just learned that, you know, it's all about context. You That's know? good. That's good. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that was a story of our, of our growing up together. It's like you, um, you know doing things out of the box, trying, exploring, and me realizing, okay, there, you know, please go for it, do it. These are wonderful things you're doing, but there's a limit. Well, but you did, and then one time Daisy snapped at you, and was that was food. and that was the end of that. I mean, she was not going to share her food Well, with after you. what I did in the yard, you guys, you're trying to, you were confused about why Daisy's poops were so big, and but I got my, the Simpsons taken away for a month. Oh, that because was Because you said big boys don't poop in the yard. Only big boys get to watch The Simpsons. That's a good lesson. That mom. was a good, that was good. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, so things like that, that were, you, there, you were, you made us aware of the limits and that was, I think that's good parenting. And maybe that came from your role as a teacher, as a mom, as a, as a librarian, all your, you'd had a lot of experience with kids before I, I, you had us. I had had a lot of experience. Um, I taught, um. I taught history to middle schoolers and high and English to high school and middle school, and um, that's a lot of fun, um, and a but a lot of energy. And there are limits. And the thing is, with middle schoolers, you can play with them, and they are a lot of fun. But 
there are times when enough is enough. High school has attitude. <laughs> and hormones. But, and hormones. Um, but the thing is with teaching is that a lot of it is storytelling. And because I taught history and English, that's stories. And I love stories. And in order to have your class engaged with you, you throw out the net as you would with a, uh, as a fisherman, and you bring in your catch. And if you have them in the net, then you've got it. it it's, it's lots of fun. But there are a few fish that fall out of the net <laughs> at times. And so you got to, you know, get them back in and, and corral them. But I did love that. And then I went on uh, to become a librarian. I went back to school and became a librarian. And I continued to tell stories. And I told stories to uh, in the schools to middle school and to high school. But um, then I went on to public libraries, and I had a chance to tell stories to babies and toddlers and preschoolers. And that was really fun. And that involved puppets and felt stories and singing. singing. Uh, it was great. And I backed you up on guitar. You one or did. Two of those. You came yeah. to the Baby and Me programs, and you sang. Cool. We even, I think we practiced at home a little bit, and then, and then you were there with the, the kids. And that was a, that was a hit. That was really fun. I think that was a baby program yeah, that you came to. That was fun. And and so you, your career is interesting, Mom, because you, after, so you met Dad when you were still an undergrad? Yeah, I was a sophomore How in college. How old were you? I was uh, 18. What's your first memory of meeting Dad? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's a funny story. Um, at that time, I was in a sorority, which lasted one year. Um, and I was uh, at on door duty. That is, I opened the door for the people who came by to pick up my sorority sisters. And um, Dad was um, picking up his sister, Rosie, and it was his 21st birthday. Um, and I had to stand at the door because I was a pledge uh, and sing a little song. Um, Do you remember it? Um, let's see. Uh, I'm a little neophyte working for the Rose and White Tell me who you wish to see, and I will see where, he, where she may be. And so I sang. I had my, and that day. This what was is, he wearing? What did he look like? Oh, he was dressed up. He looked was so handsome. He had a sports coat and tie, and they were going out to dinner for his birthday. Okay. Uh, and um, so there I was, and I went and got Rosie, but I didn't know Rosie very well, and I didn't know, certainly didn't know. Bob. Rosie was in your sorority? She was in my sorority. Okay. She was a sorority sister. So um, so she, they went off to dinner, and later I saw her, and I said, oh, I didn't know you had an older brother, because I knew immediately that this is somebody that was pretty special. Smooth. <laughs> so, and he felt the same way. And he felt the same way. So later um, we dated, and it was um, a challenging uh a dating opportunity because he was at Stanford and I was at Cal and there was a lot of, of commute at that time. But we dated for that year and um, then got married two, two years later. And when you got... when or he three years later, I guess. He proposed to you, you wanted to make it clear that you were going to finish your master's, right? <laughs> That's go to true. grad school, right? That's true. What did you say when he proposed to you? Well, I... And how did he propose to you? I don't know. I, I know this story. <laughs> uh, he... Um, was at Columbia at law school, and he would come out to visit at Cal, particularly when Columbia shut down, um, because we were in college during the 60s. So were you guys dating? Yes. Were you exclusive? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so Just curious. Okay, so he would come out, 
And uh, whenever the college was shut down because of a demonstration, of course, this is the anti-Vietnam War era, and both Berkeley and Columbia were very involved in that. He'd fly out, and his father worked for an airline, so he would get passes, and he'd come out as long as the this demonstration was on. And uh, one time he flew out, and he proposed, and he proposed um, in the Yellow Rambler, which was the car that... Uh, was our car? It was his car, but we I, we drove it. And he had he talked to your dad? No, oh. he did later. Was Grandpa mad? Well, I don't know. Grandpa was very gracious. Grandpa was a feminist. <laughs> I don't know if he's a feminist. He's very gracious. And so anyway, I said yes, I would love to marry you. But you know, I've been applying to all these graduate schools to get my master's in history, and um, you know, that's really on my. That's really what I want to do. Uh, so we work it out. We could get married later or whatever. And he says, no, 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 not a problem. We'll make sure that happens. So we did. So we were both in school in New York City, and it so was a challenge. Did that sway you, you going to school in New York because you wanted to be near him, right? Yeah. Where else I, did you apply? Uh, I applied to Berkeley, and I applied. I actually applied to New York schools with the idea of going back there to be by him. Smart. But I wasn't planning to get married. I okay. was planning to go back and go to school. But I didn't want marriage to interfere with that plan. So it worked out. But, you know, two people in school in New York City is expensive and that was hard. But we did it. You did it. And and it's interesting how the, the era, the times, the this the social unrest like would allow dad to come spend time with you. And how hearing about your story is a very romantic it's almost like a movie, you know, like this the romance under the talk about being in DC while there were riots, right? We were there during the time of when Martin Luther King was um, assassinated. We went down to 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 Washington to visit, and that weekend the city was on fire. Um, we couldn't cross town, and um, it was very scary and very upsetting. Um, we were also um, this is a time when I graduated from Berkeley was a time when um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And um, so that was the year of, that was a 68, which was the year we got married, was a very um, unsettling year. And um, of course, we were sympathetic with all that was going on. It was a year of much change. Um, but we found, you know, we found each other and we were in New York uh, studying and um, doing the best we could on a shoestring budget for sure. <laughs> You're both very strong people and you both came into the relationship, it seems, learning about it now with this. You were both very young, but you both had like like strength and strong identities. Is that true? Well, I think that we both knew what we wanted to do in life. That we yeah. both had a clear picture and we wanted it to do together. And we were very supportive of each other. And um, I, at that time, wanted to teach. I hadn't made the change to being a librarian. I wanted to teach. I was committed to that. And um, Dad was committed to um, being a lawyer. So together, we had goals and a mission. And we were trying to navigate it through this this really challenging time. And New York was a very difficult city then there too. It was not a safe city. So um, I was working during the day in Midtown for an economic consulting firm, and then I would go up and take my classes at Hunter at night, which, yes. And, and um, I would be out of school at 10 o'clock at night, which is a little, um, you know, a little late. I had to cross the park and get up Upper Side, West Side, 
So um, dad would always come over and meet me at 10 o'clock, and then we'd take the bus back and then the subway up. But when we got, when I, we got a little bit more money, when I got a full-time job, um, I was able to take a cab home. So that was easier. But there were just things that weren't safe, uh, a stabbing on the subway. Um, so you'd witnessed that, right? I witnessed that. Um, yeah. So there were just things that were not safe. New York is so much safer now, and the graffiti was horrible. Um, it's just a delight to go back to New York now because things are just so much um, calmer, and it's such a beautiful city. In your poem that we began the episode with, you talked about how you had birds that were all coincidentally named after Australian cities. And some cities that don't come to mind is like the first city when someone thinks of Australia, Canberra, right? Right. And you married an Australian. You were always interested in Australia since you were a kid, huh? Yes. In uh, fifth grade, um, I did a report on Australia, sixth grade. And um, I just was fascinated by the animals in Australia, the, the weird animals. And I just said to myself, I am going to Australia. When I grow up, that's one of the things I'm going to do. So when I met Dad and found out he was Australian, oh, and I named my birds after Australian right. cities. I was very into parakeets. I don't know what, where that came from, but I did really... He, did he really, have an Aussie accent? No, but okay. the birds were Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney, and Pete. <laughs> and so... Um, Pete was kind of an outlier. Yeah, Pete was an outlier. Uh, Pete came into the garage. He flew away from someone, and we captured him, and he was the fourth bird, and I just called him Pete. <laughs> so, <laughs> But anyway, so then I went and... Um, yeah, so then I met Dad. And so I was, I always had this, and I went to Australia. So I did get to, to Australia, which was wonderful. Many times, right? Yeah, several times, yes. Um, and a theme of this podcast is about people who are adaptable and creative in changes they've made. And you have this great story about when you decided you wanted to get yet another master's and go to library school, how you were very creative and kind of just made that happen. Do you mind sharing that story? I love this story. <laughs> Well, um, uh, one day I was crossing, the, I worked in San Francisco, I was crossing the, the Bay Bridge. I had parent-teacher conferences, which were always challenging, and I my voice, I was losing my voice. And I thought, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I want to try something else. And I thought about all the things I taught for five years. I thought about all the things I loved about teaching, the kids, the literature, um, sharing ideas. And I thought, what career can I have that would build on what I've been doing and I thought, hmm, librarianship. I've always loved libraries. So um, I made an appointment. I called up the dean at Berkeley of the library school. And I said, I'd love to meet with you and just find out about the program. And it was a she. She said, yes, let's make an appointment. So I went over there. And I was just enraptured. The library school at Berkeley is in the original one of the original buildings in the 18, uh, 1860s. And so it's a charming building to begin with. And uh, she said, now, the problem is that this is the last day for applications, so you might think about, you know, next year or whatever. And I thought, no, I'm not going to think about next year. So I went down to the registrar, got the application. Of course, this is before the digital age. And I sat there and filled out the application, wrote my essays, and... Um, got my, I could get references later, got my references, had already taken my GREs, and um, 
I got accepted. <laughs> so job, I was I was not going to wait another year. There's no more of that. So anyway, <laughs> that was very lucky to be accepted, and it was great. And I've I've had a wonderful forty year career as librarian. I've loved that. You got straight A's, right? Oh, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> yeah, but you're not, you are, mom, you are one of the most brilliant people I've ever no, met. No, 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 no. No, and I think it's important that like, you always, you would always call me out on things when I was a little kid, if I were saying something chauvinist or sexist or like talking about how the male, the male Ninja Turtles were the best. You would always remind me that this um, cultural dialogue or this kind of like hegemony through which we see the world and through which popular culture uh, might brainwash kids is not the truth. And I think you did that in a lot of by, your action by being a strong, uh, intelligent, great role model and showing, yeah, showing that old world views on the limitations of, of, of the feminine role were very antiquated. Well, I think too, that, um, part of this is having, uh, coming of age in the sixties, which is a time of feminism. And, um, really women were, were moving into a role of leadership and, um, you know, our, my parents, my mother had a traditional role, although she did work, um, grandma had a traditional role, but we had the opportunity to do whatever we wanted and we could go out there and do it. And, um, there were just already amazing women that were making a statement. So although I was in traditional careers that is uh, dominated by women, um, I knew that there was so much out there and, and people that I went to school with were becoming lawyers and doctors and, um, uh, Apply, you know, running for government office, I, it, it was an opportunity. So there was no way that, that you were going to um, get away with anything that was chauvinistic in our house. Yeah. Or anything that was, yeah, biased or, or, or swearing, especially no, sexist no, no, swearing. No, 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 no. you didn't play that. <laughs> no, that was, that was one game we weren't playing. <laughs> and I remember once we were in the car in fifth grade and uh, a friend, Ben, had loaned me this Snoop Dogg's debut album, and we put it in, and it's we were driving, and the first track is just, you know, they're at a party, and it's, you know, the first everyone listening knows the first Snoop Dogg album, and you eject it, and you're like, nope, you're not going to copy this. This is You're not going to have this in our house. This I don't think the music is appropriate, and uh, I'm making a parental decision. So you confiscated the tape, and I gave it back to Ben the next day. And later, I, you know, I dubbed the, <laughs> dubbed the tape from him. In uh, all. <laughs> but, so I'm learning this, what, 30 years later? No, but it was like it, you, you, you took a stand. And I, you know, I was being a little cheeky trying to, mm -hmm. I knew it was inappropriate. Snoop Dogg is not known for, you know, you don't bump Snoop Dogg while you're in the whip going to the women's march, you know, but, <laughs> but the thing is you did expose me to other things that I, it's not like I would have found Snoop Dogg and bought it at the record store. That's for sure. Or how about the time when the third jerky boys CD came out and I was so excited for, it, I pre-ordered it and I'd saved my allowance. And then you went and picked it up. Right. And they were like, what is this, this mom doing buying jerky boys three? <laughs> there was that too. Well, I, you know, I, there was a lot of things that you got away with, I got to admit, but um, at least I was already letting you know that these things you needed to think about, that this was not, uh, that I, uh, these were things for you to think about. And how was it being a parent while, while this beast, this many-headed hydra known as the internet 
slowly entered all of our lives in in the early to to mid nineties. Like, uh-huh. how did that? How did your role? Like, how did that? How did you keep us together? Well, I, I think that um, you know you were uh, very early in that. You were uh, well, you were five maybe when the internet came on. Um, so what would you say? Eighty, ninety maybe. Well, when would you say that? Been, well, when was Prodigy? Prodigy and right? AOL would have been early, what? 80, early, late eighties. Late eighties. Okay. Yeah. So, AOL you, so your really early formative years, it didn't exist, uh-huh. and you didn't have the opportunity to watch television all the time. So you didn't really have the media. So I think you were already maybe formed. I think it's a lot harder for parents now. But we did get a computer in 1985. Um, it was an Apple. What was it? That was it. Was, a, it was the 512. The 512 K, and um, that was really exciting. And you just took to that like immediately. Uh, there were a few challenges with that, but uh, it was such an amazing tool. And it wasn't as I don't know. It was more benign in those days. It wasn't. Right. It wasn't quite so. Um, it was just more benign and. Uh, it didn't seem to be a problem. You and you had limits. You were only on it for so long, but you were so creative with it, and you were drawing with it, and you were just doing so many amazing things that I, you know. I just saw, and I saw it in my profession as being such an incredible thing. I mean, I started in my library work with uh, pockets and cards and uh, pencils. Uh, many of you may not remember those days, but you would check out a book by taking out the card. But I moved into computers and databases, and um, I just thought this was such an amazing thing for my career that I was pleased to embrace it. Um, but later, you know, we just we just put limits on it. But I think it's a lot harder for parents now because it's so pervasive. Right, and family dinners, we'd always, you know, we'd always, when we were home, we'd have family dinners. We'd all have to talk, share about our day. Right. And now, you know, sometimes if I go to someone's house and, their kids or people are on at the dinner table on their phones. I, it's surprising, isn't it? Yeah, but, I would play that. If I had a kid, he or she was not, you're not bringing a phone to the table. In fact, I'm going to monitor your phone use and you're not going to be sitting at the table texting your friends. Yeah. That seems yeah. right. Right. But I don't feel like you, you and dad would have put up with that. No, we wouldn't have put up with that. And I think, I, I think it's really interesting how teachers have to deal with that now. I didn't have to deal with that as a teacher. Um, I know that some teachers have a basket as the kids come in, whatever, but I know it's just a different world. You taught the art of conversation and I always, we always joke about this, but it's true. You've taught me and correct me if this is wrong, a life perspective that I've shared, which I use when I play shows and meet fans, when I'm teaching, when I'm traveling, it's not that when you get to a party, Oh, I'm here. The party can stop, can start. I'm here. The party can begin. You know, let's the, the guest honors arrive. No, it's I'm here. What can I learn about the people here? And what can I hear? Like, what can I take from this experience? And that is mom is honestly, it's kind of like a punk rock ethos in that. Like you take away the barrier between the audience and the stage. The event is not the, the show. The event is everyone there. And we all learn from each other. No one on stage is more important than anyone in the crowd and vice versa. And, I really appreciate that because that's always what you said. And it took me a while to get that. But that having that philosophy in life is a lot less lonely and a lot, it's it's a, just, a, just a better way to be a human being. Mm, I love that. You put that so beautifully. Do you remember, how did you, like, where did you I don't know. There must have been something about, 
you being uh, wanting to dominate or be on stage or whatever. But and I think you were that's that was something you showed us since we were like kindergarten. Well, I I guess maybe that I that's just something that I believe that I'm curious about people. I'm curious about people's stories and who they are and why they are what they are and what they're doing with their lives. So for me, um it's much more interesting to me rather than talk about myself um to find out what other people are thinking and doing. And as a teacher, um, you have a, a message that you're sharing, but you want to hear what people's responses to it and what their thoughts are and how they're building on that and working with it. And certainly as a librarian, people come in for book suggestions and you want to hear what, where they are, what they're coming from, what they're doing. So for me, that's more interesting. I am curious about life. I'm curious about what people are doing with their lives and, um, I think that I know about myself. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to um, talk about that, but I want to hear about you. And I think the, a lot of people have lost this art of conversation because they only talk about themselves, but they don't walk away with anything new. I think that's rather sad. And I found that people who only want to talk about themselves are often insecure and have a script where they're just trying to reconvince themselves that their life is interesting. Perhaps. Maybe. Perhaps, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe not. But um, yeah, I've uh, always taken that perspective. But I think as a storyteller, which um, I am, um, you learn from other people. And those are the stories that you can tell, that you incorporate into your story or to whatever you're sharing. So, you know, I learn, I sit next to uh, an engineer, which I don't really know too much about, at a uh, or I meet this person at a dinner party, I want to hear what, what he's working on and how he's figuring this out or she is figuring it out. Um, and then I walk away learning about it. Or someone who's who's a, in a new co startup company, what what is he doing? What I, I, I want to know about it because that adds to my... I just, I'm just curious. And I think you are too. And I think that's... Yeah. Uh, I, I think that that's what makes the world go around. And, and I also, an, another thing as a librarian... Um, you know, we answer reference questions, all kinds of reference questions. And so people come up with their stories in a sense because they want the answer to something. And you have to know a little bit about them and what they, one of the, a, a good reference question is figuring out exactly what they want because people will ask a question and it really isn't what they want. There may be something beyond it. Maybe it's too personal. They don't want to share it. Um, so that you learn a little bit about them. And that always intrigued me. And then we'd go with the reference question. And then I'd become so interested in answering this question that I probably might even answer it a little bit more thoroughly than they needed. But I always, that's why I love librarianship, because it's about connecting with people, answering their questions, and learning about them. And something along that topic, speaking of, of stories and questions and people's, you know, origins, You've had an incredible passion and deep dive into the world of genealogy. I have. You've gone so deep into this. Is the past ten years, maybe? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, you know when my parents, your grandparents, passed away, they left um, all kinds of things, and I boxed them up, you know, sadly, uh, and put them in the garage. And one day, 
I decided that I needed to really deal with these things that were theirs. Were we going to keep them or whatever? And I opened the first box and it was almost as though grandma was speaking to me because on the very top, which I had thrown into the box, but on the top was an article written by a cousin in Michigan about a fa our family, um, colonial family that had lived in New Jersey. And I looked at it. I'd never really read it before. I looked at it. And I thought, this is fascinating. This is so fascinating. So I immediately um, decided that I was going to figure this out. And I signed up for a course at the local community college on genealogy and um, started to learn about what this was all about. I had always loved social history as opposed to political history or history of, of, of famous people. But social history, which was the little people who are impacted by um, events that happen, wars, um, epidemics, um, scandals, things that happen in a, in a little town and help people make decisions, that fascinated me. And what is genealogy? It's the story of, in many cases, the little people and how they make the decisions that they do. So I took this class and I became even more interested and I decided to go for it and um, have just been teaching myself. And as time has gone on, um, I have become uh, a teacher of this. And I've been asked to teach in um, various, uh, uh, just recently finished up a class and I do speak all over the um, Monterey Peninsula on this. And, and all over California, right? Well, all over California, too, because yeah. I've been up to different parts. So I've um, become now uh, a popular speaker. Um, but in the process, I have used this to tell stories. And I did put out a, just published a book on our Swedish family and their immigration to North Dakota and then California. And their story of, of Sweden being in... Uh, just not enough land, uh, having so many kids and trying to divide up the land. Um, in our case, it was a tenant farmer who had no land and moved from farm to farm trying to support his family. And so he decided to, he'd heard that um, court, because of, of Lincoln, 1862, um, which was a Homestead Act, Lincoln um, gave immigrants who came to this country 160 acres. It was a law passed by Congress. And the Swedish Triangle, which is Wisconsin, North Dakota, and Minnesota, was where a lot of Swedes um, came. And Anders Petter Anderson came to North Dakota, got his 160 acres, and um, became a landowner, a tenant farmer. So that story just intrigued me. And coming into uh, um, Castle Garden, Ellis um, Island was not yet um, built coming in and not speaking English and getting on the train and losing a child at sea coming across. I mean, this is just an amazing story of resilience and courage. And um, I find that all of us have ancestors. In fact, one of the things that to consider um, is that stories are lost in three generations if they aren't written down or told. So we all know our parents in most cases, and we know our grandparents if we're lucky, but we don't know our great-grandparents, and this is a great-grandparent. So it's really important to save these stories and record them. And so I've become on a mission to encourage people to, to tell their stories and to talk to their older relatives and get the stories before they're totally lost because they're fascinating. Another, can I keep talking? <laughs> yeah, please. That's cool. Um, 
another thing that it, to consider is that children who are raised, who see parents who are resilient and grandparents who are resilient, who experience tragedies or sadness or setbacks in their life, I believe that they become stronger because they've seen that their parents can handle it. Their parents may have had something happen in their lives that have made it difficult. And the kids see that the parents have survived. And I think that's an amazing lesson to pass on to your kids. So that if we tell our stories to our children and, our, and the stories of the grandparents and great-grandparents, our kids are learning. And I think can take pride in these amazing uh, ancestors that we have. And even when our ancestors are, you know, maybe not... Um, as perfect as we'd like. Maybe maybe we've got um, a villain in, in the group or someone who had some difficulties in life and didn't handle it as well. I think we can learn from that too. And you've traced the Anderson family back how many generations, like records of... Oh, probably about um, maybe seven generations. The Swedes and many European countries kept really a specific records. The churches mm. were actually the ways that they kept track. And so that the priests or the ministers would go to the families and check on the catechism of the family, whether or not they were reading the Bible, if they were coming to church or whatever. Um, and this was a Lutheran church, uh, which many of those Lutheran countries, Sweden being one of them. Um, and so the records say... Uh, we'll make notes about, oh, was not, you know, did not really come to church or whatever, or maybe was jailed or joined joined the army or um, left even left for America. They're dated. These church records are absolutely amazing. So even though I don't know the life stories of some of these people, I do know um, the occupation that they had, and I do know the towns that they came in, and I do know when they left for America. And I, I think it's a fascinating story. And what are some some of the podcasts you listen to that have been helpful? In oh, I, I'm a podcast <laughs> junkie. <laughs> so MC Lars, of course, is top of the list right now, the MC Lars podcast. <laughs> but um, um, Well, especially this episode. Especially this episode. Um, there are a number of, of genealogy podcasts. Lisa Louise Cooks is uh, Genealogy Gems, and she's a monthly podcast where she gives tips and tricks uh, in the study of genealogy. And didn't you get a shout out on her podcast? I have gotten shout outs because I have commun I do know her and I've communicated with yeah. her and, um, she does give me shout outs. And then there's, um, uh, two guys, the genealogy guys, almost like click and clack, uh, who are wonderful and informative. Um, they're called the genealogy guys. So though I listen to them and extreme genes is another one. And I, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I love my, uh, I, when I walk, I love to walk and listen to my podcast, but number one is MC Lars. <laughs> well, um, that's cool. Thank you, mom. That's nice. Um, what, when you heard that I wanted to do rap professionally and take my English degree and, and do MC Lars, what were like, now that it's 14 years deep, what were some of your honest thoughts? Well, uh, about this time, let's see. Well, the the concern was that you actually um, uh, suspended your so your senior year. You took your senior year off and had the opportunity to tour with Bowling for Soup, which was an amazing opportunity for you. And um, uh, my fear was that you weren't going to come back and graduate after three amazing years 
at Stanford and not to come back and graduate. But you assured me that you would, and I trusted and hoped that that was the case. But I, I, you know, your dad and I really wanted you to complete your college career. So when you did, which you did, you came back and did took those units that summer. I mean, you did senior year in one quarter, 18 units. I don't know how you did it, but you did it. When you graduated and got that degree, um, I had confidence that you were going to do what you were going to do and that you would make it work. I always have had confidence that you would make it work. So I figured, well, you know, go for it. Do it. Just, you know, I wish you the best. And, and um, you know, if this doesn't work out, there'll be something else. You'll find something else to do. So I never really have had, um, I've never been afraid. As long as you, gra- when you got that degree, I felt a lot better. Right, that I had a, a plan B. You had a plan B. You could, <laughs> and you could always teach, and I knew you could always teach English. So, <laughs> and I knew you'd be a fabulous English teacher or a teacher of any kind, as you are. You are a teacher already. Like my mom. Yeah, I knew that. Thank you. And um, how would you, how would you deal with sometimes when like I played you demos that weren't as good as other demos? How were you honest with me about? Because I always. I always would play you my songs, and obviously some songs are better than others. Well, there were some that I felt were really controversial, uh-huh. and I was quite clear on those. Yeah. I thought that those should not be out. Um, I, 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 you, you didn't always follow my advice. You did not follow my advice. But at least I made a statement that, you know, musically they may have been right, but the lyrics were not appropriate, and, um, or I felt they weren't. And so I said that. Right. Um, but the ones that I really like, I, I, I mean, I pretty much like everything you do. <laughs> I'm a little, bi- you know, a little biased. But the ones that I really like, I really like. And, and, you, and I always say that to you. And I, yeah. say what, and I say specifically what I like about, I try to say that, uh, you know, I, I love the theme that you, you, or I love this, the fact that you had that, um, you know, you added that particular beat to it. Or I try to be specific about what I like. Um, but I, yes, I, there's some I've liked more than others. I, <laughs> some are a little crazy, I got to admit. <laughs> but then that's you. That's your personality. Um, thank you, Mom. You And one of the songs, I Generation, you are featured as a star actress in the video. I am, and that was such a thrill. That was so much fun. Could you talk about what it was like filming that? Well, um, you know, of course, um, that was filmed by my nephew, Stuart, Andrew's first cousin, and um, Stuart Hendler, who is an amazing director. And it was so professional and so... um, just to see what the behind the scenes of a music video was, was amazing. And all the thought that goes into it. I do remember a couple of funny stories about that. I was a chemistry teacher and I had a white jacket and um, a costume and makeup and all that. And um, we took a break and I went to the crafts table, which is it crafts? I guess they say craft services. Craft services. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Okay, so craft services where this lovely spread was out and we could take a break and whatever. And the costume um, guy who was in charge of all our costumes, Teddy, Teddy comes yeah. roaring over because I have this white jacket. And he says, he says, you've got to take that off. You cannot eat anything with that white jacket on um, because we can't have you get a spot on it right now. So I removed the white jacket. It was a, a like a 
a lab coat. And uh, that was like, I thought, yes, that's right. That These are all these things that they have to do. And if we're filming, the hair's got to be right and the makeup you can't change. So that was really interesting to me. Also, there were a lot of what you do, what do you call the people who, um, on, what do you call it? They're not on calls. What are they? Um, like the extras? The extras. There were yeah. a lot of extras. And the man, because they, it was a classroom. So there were a lot of people who were brought in. Right. And the management of the extras was really interesting to me. Um, I do remember Stuart came over to me when I was uh, ready. Of course, in, if, if some of you have seen that music video, um, MC Lars comes in and disrupts the class and there is confetti flying and whatever. And here I am, the chemistry teacher, shocked and <laughs> surprised. And he came over and he says, now, you really, you got to live this, you know, this is what would you do if you were in an actual classroom and this happened to you, how would you respond? What would be your facial expressions? And I thought that was really neat. That's what a director does. They come up to you, they tell you, give you some tips on how you, they, they validate what you're doing and they tell you you're great and then they give you some tips and then you go with the tips. So I had some insight, never having really acted other than school plays or whatever. Um, that was very interesting to me, the role the director plays and your interaction with the other um, actors and the artists. Uh, it was an amazing experience. I loved it. And, yeah. it. and it's amazing how long it takes, even for just filming a short thing, because you've got the retakes and you're waiting and you're not on and then you get called on. And um, uh, it was very professional. I loved it. I think it's still my most professional video. And I think that's because, well, obviously the great cast, but Stuart, yeah, he also, he did the Halo Forward Unto Dawn movie. He did um, Whisper. He did Max Steel, right? Yeah, Max Steel and Sorty. Sorty um, Row. Yeah. He's done a lot. And now he, he, he does a lot of car commercials and he's working in other projects. And having a creative nephew that we spent a lot of time with, that was cool. How you always, mom, made a point of, connecting their families and connecting with our families in the in the uh, Central Valley and also making sure that we had a connection with our relatives in Australia. That's right. And it's that was like often you were the glue, you and dad, but you were a lot of time made sure that we had time for each other and making sure that Sarah and I really spent a lot of time with grandma and grandpa and Nana and, and Papa. And Nana and Papa, yes, because that the, was really important. And Nana and Papa, I, I now learned, is Australian for grandma and grandpa, but... That was a, that was a Nana. Our, you know what I mean? That was, Nana. I realized now that that was like a special term. That's how we could differentiate the, the yeah. oh, Nana is often used more in an English culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, but th that was the names they chose to have you call them. And that was yeah. nice because you had, there were four different names. Well, I just feel family's really important and we learn from so, so much from each other. And um, we're the one, you know, family, your friends are always, are there for you as well, but your family will always be there for you. And yeah. I think that's really special. And, um, that was it. The fact that Stuart did that music video was just an amazing experience. It was really a family. In fact, uh, your aunt Rosie did was a craft services yeah. and she did a beautiful job of, of putting all the food out. And she's one of the extras in the, uh, Oh, she's in that too. When, when I'm running through the, uh, and our, and, uh, uncle Joel, He's, he's, when I'm in the supermarket, he's like one of the surprise guys in the lines. And then Rosie's putting groceries in her car and I throw her one of the party poppers. Yeah. And then they come down the street and do the dance. Yeah, that was amazing. That was, it was a really good video. 
I, I'm proud to have been part of that. It was really fun. And then Dad was in uh, the other one. Yeah, download the song. Download the song, and that was really fun to be on the set for that too. Um, that was and that was Frank, who had a different style, but also Frank Bourne, who's very professional and did a lot of stuff with Bowling for Soup. And yeah, this, those first few videos really were really good. And yeah. Jared, um, but then you've had you know amazing ones by Tim and um, yes, Sean. Eleven, yes. uh, Sean Donnelly, uh, Donnelly, Donnelly, and um, you know the, you've had some amazing, amazing videos. Really great. Um, uh, yeah, and it's been it's interesting, Mom, because it's like every every year I think more about the values that you instilled in Sarah and me, and it, they make more and more sense. Like family, uh, time for each other, learning to listen, um, being respectful. Not doing graffiti in public places, <laughs> like, <laughs> or or coloring the wall, <laughs> and and it's interesting, like thinking about all this. And if you, you know, thinking about the future, my future, and with Ashley, you know, if there's something advice you could have given yourself as a young married person, and eventually, you know, when you had kids, like any advice in that world that you could go back, that maybe you could share with me, and maybe any of our listeners who might be at the beginning of a relationship or thinking about being parents, you know? Well, I, I think the one thing that has served now, we've been married 50 years, which is hard. I can't believe 50 years. Um, but I think what served us well is having a sense of humor. And when there's been moments of tension or a difference of opinion, if we can, one of us can say something funny, um, it sort of um, diffuses the tension. So I think humor has really served us well. And I think we both have a pretty good sense of humor. Um, there's times that we've just laughed and laughed and, and, uh, I, th I think that's really important, but I think the most important thing is respect is respect of your partner and, and li to listen what they have to say, because they're coming from a different place and we can learn from their perspective. So respect, and also to really share in the successes of your partner. Um, if they're doing something that they, you know, are being honored for or something they've accomplished, then to share in that and to just validate that and just say, this is so amazing. I am so happy to be there and be part of this. Um, because to tear the other down is not serving any purpose. Um, but to build them up builds both of you up. So I guess those would be my tips. I, I would say that's what served, has served us well. Those are good tips. And you, I've seen that you and dad as great role models that you always made an effort to show each other you loved each other. You always would respect each other. And when you disagreed, you would uh, still be kind about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that being a, being parents, there are things you agreed on, things you disagreed on. And a lot of, I wonder if a lot of the... Uh, Decision-making fell to you because dad was gone so much. I think that's true. Um, yeah. but, but dad always supported me, and we did talk about things. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that's true, uh, that I was the one that had to, in many cases, be the disciplinarian, or, and dad would come home. But dad was, was supportive of that. Right. Um, and had, so I think it's important to be, I think it's really, I, I, I see this with um, people who have different child-raising approaches and I think that's really hard on the child too, because the child doesn't know um, 
really doesn't know where they stand. So I think it's important for the, the couple to be, to talk about these things and be united and not one cup, one parent to say one thing and one parent to say the other. I remember one of the things that you guys really did not like is if I'd asked you something and you said no, and then I asked dad and he said yes, and playing you guys off each other, like getting permission and you quickly let it let us know that that was not appropriate because <laughs> I knew you'd have different perspectives, <laughs> you know. And, and if we hadn't had a chance to talk about it yeah. before, you'd catch us before we'd had. This is something you know, like I wouldn't have had a chance to tell Dad that you had come to me with this. You couldn't very text each clever. other yet. Very <laughs> clever. Yes, that was very clever. But we well, we stopped doing that because we realized that eventually, you whoever said no was going to win. <laughs> so you were a unified front. Well, we tried to be, that's for sure. Um, we talked earlier about how in the car we used to uh, play Raffi, right? To right. quiet us down. And one of the first concerts, actually the first concert I ever went to, you took Sarah and me to see Raffi. In Oakland probably, right? I think it was Oakland Paramount Theater, yeah. And I remember I was so... And you were like three or four? Yeah, really young and very en enraptured by his voice and his storytelling that I was sitting still and being very good. And I remember... He gave us. He was giving dedication to all the kids who were really well behaved, and he, he gave me a shout out. And I didn't realize it was me. And you said, "Oh, that's you, Raffi." Raffi said you were a good a good boy during the concert, and that was a really cool moment that you took us there, and that you you know you reinforced that being well behaved, you get you know you get a good good recognition. You know what I mean? I had no idea Raffi was mentioning me, and like I bet you were probably proud that we weren't misbehaving at the show. And do you remember that uh, he had everyone get up and dance in the aisles? I do, yeah. I don't. Was it for Baby Beluga? Probably, yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I remember we were all standing up in in the aisles just dancing. It was so much fun. So of course, then I bought the the cassette tape because it brought back great memories. Raffi is always, a, that song especially is a crowd pleaser. So do we want to tell about what? what yes, you got where I was leading into. <laughs> well, so um, when Andrew and Ashley were married this last summer, um, Andrew and I were planning our um, our mother-son dance, and we were trying to come up with a song that would work. And so we had a lot of different suggestions. One of them was ICP's The Mom Song, which is Violin J. Shout out to his mom over Changes by Tupac. But we realized that might not be appropriate. Uh, that it was weird, right? It was weird, and it wasn't comfortable for me. So I said, you know, I, I appreciate this song, and I you, you know, appreciate ICP, and you've, you know, helped me learn about them, and I have more appreciation for them. But I just don't think that's the right song. So, so then you came up with, um, you said, what about Baby Beluga? Right. And that was so perfect. That That's was the jam. That was the jam. So we came, uh, we practiced and we went, uh, went out on the dance floor and it was just perfect. Well, we went to a, we went to a dance coach in Connecticut mm -hmm. and we had this moment where we were practicing where he was, you know, showing us some moves and stuff. And he's like, this is your son is growing up. And he, you don't have anything to worry about, and you just need to let him bleed. That's and, right. As you go forward in life, right? It was like a little exactly. Microcosm. It was so amazing. He he shared that. Well, well, I guess I was leading or trying to lead, or right, I, I want I wanted it to be right. You know, I wanted this to be right. And he says, "You don't have to do that anymore." 
because your son is growing up and he can lead. He will be leading you. So let him lead and um, he will take care of you. He will make it okay. He will, he will do it. That was such an amazing lesson. So I relaxed, turned it over to Andrew and we were great. <laughs> And we crushed it. And we crushed it. <laughs> and we got all kinds of applause. So that was really fun. And we were prepared, though. And, and you know, that we were prepared. And the song, not only was it hit with the uh, millennials at the wedding, it was also a hit with the little kids. Oh, they loved it. Who were familiar it. with that, that banging song. Yeah, there were some kids that were sort of dancing to it and all. And the words are nice, too, about mother. It's so it was It's a great song. So um, Baby Beluga was perfect. It, and I want to thank you, Mom, for all you've done to raise me and all your... It's an infinite supply of love and support to, to have a a great mother like you and have that love, have that... You know, I know I wasn't the easiest son to raise, but I turned out well, and I owe that to Dad, but also really to you. And because you showed me what a strong female role model could be, you showed me the importance of self-discipline, you showed me the importance of being a respectful person, and uh, I always think, now, what would mom say about this? Oh, that's so that's so sweet. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure. I have loved being your mom, and it has been so much fun. And um, it's just, you're a gift, and I have loved every minute of it. Thanks, mom. Thank you. And you'll, guess what? You'll always be my mom. I know. <laughs> I'll always be your mom. So thank you. Where can people, like... Did you, are, are you no, on social media? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you live in California and you live in the Monterey area, I am speaking all over. So um, love to, and you're interested in family stories and family history, love to have you um, come to one of my lectures. So Catherine Nielsen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, keep your eyes peeled. And you often do lectures at the Monterey Public Library. I do. I do. Yeah. So shout out to the Monterey Public Library and shout out to you, Mom. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And people tried to put us down with iTunes bumped the post-Cold War sound. A generation set at the Mecca of malls. Times Square, I'm there, Viacom installed. So we hit the net while the Trade Center fell. New York met Hollywood, we ran like hell. No Vietnam for us, yo, Iraq, it's on. So who agreed upon this Cowboy Genghis Khan? The choice made, baby. Hey, we take it back. Logged in, dropped out. MTV took track. They sold it back to us and claimed the correlation. The iMac, iPod, iGeneration. And I'm waiting for the day we can get out. The world is ours. That's a story, no doubt. No doubt. Wanna be more than info superhighway traffic? Wanna be more than a walking demographic? Hey, you're part of it. Talking about the I generation. Yeah, you're part of it. Talking about my I generation. Hey, you're part of it. Talking about the I generation. Yeah, you're part of it. Talking about my I generation. The I generation, new organization meant optimization and unification when imagination gave participation in creation of culture, a manifestation. The Berlin Wall fell and out we came. The post Cold War kids laid claim to aim. LOL, OMG, yo, BRB, space colon dash close parentheses. We sat at our laptops and typed away and found that we each had something to say. Web logged our fears, our hopes and dreams, individuated by digital means. Fiber optic lenses, DVD, Coca-Cola, Disney, and Mickey D's. Flat mass culture, the norm that took hold. I hope I die before I get sold. Hey, you're part of it. Talking about the I generation. Yeah, you're part of it. Talking about my I generation. Hey, about the I generation. Yeah. You're part of it. Talking about my I generation. Uh, yeah. You're part of it. Talking about the I 
Thanks, Mom. That was a great interview. It was an honor being able to talk to you about this stuff. And I learned a lot. I learned, you know what? My mom's pretty cool. So this holiday season, uh, if you see family, parents, cousins, let them know you appreciate them because I definitely appreciate my family and I definitely appreciate my mom. So shout out to her. Next week, yo, we've got George Watsky. What? Uh, I was in LA. I got to talk to him. He's got a tour coming out, a new EP. And it was cool because, you know, I've known George for years and... We did a song and a video together, but you know, I don't see him much unless he's on tour or unless we're in the same city. And like I said, with the podcast, it's a good reason to catch up. So that's awesome. George Watsky talking about art and the timeless things in this mercurial world. I'm MC Lars. Merry Christmas, y'all. Thanks for listening. And uh, I'll see you guys next week, New Year's Eve. All right. Peace.